all glory, all honor. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We were so undeserving, Lord. We were rebels. We were sinners. We were going every direction but towards you. But we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. Lord, this is the gospel. This is great news. The best news that's ever come to this earth. And I pray now as we continue this gospel fluency series, as we look into Philippians 2, that we will come to understand the gospel with greater depth and greater value. And Lord, today as we open to Philippians 2, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that your word will be our teacher this morning. That we know that scripture is um, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So we pray that we will learn from Scripture this morning. We pray that we will learn from your Holy Spirit as well. For we know that even though we can read these words from Scripture all we want, but unless the Holy Spirit is illuminating what is there, that we are not going to fully grasp the implications. So Lord, help us today to fall deeper in love with you. Help us to internalize the gospel even more and help us to know how we can point others to Christ more faithfully as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever thought about how much influence you have over the people who are all around you? Or to flip that question around, have you ever thought about how much influence the people around you have on your life? Because the reality is, as much as we, Amer- we as Americans like to talk about independence, as much as we feel like we have freedom to make our own decisions and our own choices in life, the reality is that we are still deeply influenced by the people who are all around us. And really, this starts at a very early age. You look at young children, young children are constantly mimicking and imitating what they see taking place all around them. Obviously, the most prominent uh, role model for most young kids whom they imitate is their parents. But realistically, young children will imitate almost anything and everything else they see as well, whether it comes from friends, whether it comes from TV, anywhere. I think of a couple of weeks ago, I was biking with my children up to Cedar Grove. They were in a little bike trailer behind me. I was pulling them. We were a little bit north of Belgium, just kind of out in a very wooded area. It was just, it was a beautiful morning. And all of a sudden, I hear Micaiah yell from the burly cart, I need to go pee. And so I thought, okay, this is just a nice time to stop. We'll all get out. We'll all stretch. We'll all have a nice little break. And so I get them out of the burly cart, uh, which is that cart that we pull behind the, the bike. And Micaiah goes over the side of the trail, as he's learned to do over time. I used to have to hold him there, but now he can go by himself. So he just went over the side of the trail, went to the bathroom in the brush, and it was all good. And we were just kind of hanging out, not really paying much attention to what was going on. All of a sudden, I look over on the side of the trail right there, and there's my one-year-old daughter, Tahila. And she's over there. She pulled up her shirt, sticking out her hips, and is pretending like she's going to the bathroom, standing up just like a little boy. She's imitating Micaiah. I mean, imitation happens, like I said, all over the place. And this imitation is not just restricted to childhood. It continues into adolescence. Now, as much as we would like teenagers to continue to unconsciously copy mom and dad throughout their, their life, realistically, that copying unconsciously of your mom and dad weakens when you become a teenager. That doesn't mean that teenagers are not copying anyone. It just means that their role models have changed. Now, rather than looking to parents, they're looking more to their peers and more to the, the people, whether it's on TV or the, just the people that they respect and look up to. But they're still in the business of imitation. And this idea of imitating others' actions and their words and what they do in their life 
continues on to, into adulthood. Sometimes it looks like this drive to uh, metaphorically keep up with the Joneses, of looking at the, the, uh, the, um, the, the quality of life, the, the lifestyle that people are living, whether it's looking at the accomplishments um, that people have, whether it's looking at the activities they're involved in in the neighborhood, whether it's looking at the way they're raising their kids. You look at other people, you compare yourself to them, and then you strive to copy what they're doing to be in some way like them in, in one way or another. I mean, oftentimes this, this idea of imitating what others and copying what they do, it just happens kind of unconsciously, gradually, without even trying. Uh, just people rubbing off on you that you see what people do, you see what people say, maybe you see techniques that work really well for things, and you imitate them. It's a natural part of life. And it's certainly not all bad by any means. In many ways, we can copy very good things. I think of, as a pastor... I've learned so much by observing other pastors, especially pastors who have more experience than I do. They look at the things they do, look at the things they say, and, and, I, and I take mental notes on it and then apply some of those same things to my own life and my own ministry. I think back to my candidating weekend in July of 2009. Candidating weekend is when I came here. I wasn't yet the pastor of Freedens, but I had the opportunity to meet the whole church um, had a number of different events going on. I, I gave a sermon right here on Sunday morning for the first time. And then the congregation had a chance to vote on whether or not you wanted me as your pastor. And thankfully, you said yes. At least thankfully from my perspective, it's, it's worked out really well. I'm thankful to be here. But the candidating weekend overall, it was a very enjoyable, great experience. But there was one part of it that was very intimidating for me. I, I wasn't intimidated by the Q&A times. I wasn't intimidated by the, the meet and greets and all the opportunities to meet people in the church family and stuff. But I was intimidated by having to go talk with homebound people. And we did that for several hours through the course of that weekend that we would go to nursing homes and visit people who were associated with Freedens but were no longer able to make it to church. And that was scary for me, honestly. Because I'd never done that, especially, I didn't know, how does a pastor, or how, how does a pastor relate to people um, in nursing homes, especially people you've never met before? I didn't really know what that looked like at all. Oh, thankfully, I was not there all by myself. Thankfully, the interim pastor, Pastor Stan, who'd been there for 14 months before I came, he was with us, and he was great at this type of ministry. And so he was there, and, and I observed what he was doing. I was watching the way that he asked questions of the people we were visiting. I, I watched the way he used Scripture and even the passages of Scripture that he would reference. I observed how he was praying for them. And it was really remarkable in, in the following months when I actually became Pastor of Freedoms and was visiting these same people. It's remarkable how the things that I did, the questions I asked, the way I used Scripture, even some of the passages I used and the way I prayed for them was in many ways a copy of what Pastor Stan did. I had seen the model that he did. He didn't even, I, I seriously doubt he knew that he was modeling for me that morning in terms of showing how you engage in those environments. But mentally I was taking notes and uh, unconsciously I was applying what I had seen, imitating it and putting it into practice. And that was a very good thing. But all these examples just show that the, a natural, natural reality as human beings is to, for people to rub off on us that we see the things other people are doing and saying and valuing, we internalize it, and then we apply it in our own lives, oftentimes unconsciously. Now, you may be wondering, okay, Brandon, what's the relevance of what you're sharing this morning? Well, here's the relevance of this all. It's that, that we need 
to, to recognize and even harness the, this power of imitation in the process of making disciples. Because the, this idea of, of imitation and how often it takes place is a very powerful force. But again, we need to harness, that we need to understand, that we need to, to respect and to put into practice in our process of making disciples of Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. We're in a series right now that's called, that's called Gospel Fluency. The gospel is literally the good news of what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Really getting us off the hook for our sins and delivering us to new life when we come to faith in him. And we're talking about being fluent in the gospel. When you're fluent in another language, it flows. It comes naturally and easily. And we're seeking through the course of the series to become increasingly fluent in the gospel in terms of our understanding of the gospel, in terms of our application of the gospel, in terms of our communication of the gospel as well. And today we're looking at Philippians 2 verses 19 through 30. And I have to be honest with you that for my whole life as a Christian, whenever I've read Philippians, this is a passage that I just kind of gloss over. It's a passage, I mean, there are so many great passages in Philippians, but I come to this one and I read it, but I more just kind of skim it and then move on because oftentimes I find this part kind of boring. Because basically it looks like it's just Paul talking about these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and just talking about how he's going to be sending these two guys to Philippi soon. And I mean, what is there really in there as far as meat that I can chew on spiritually to help me to grow? And so oftentimes I, I just kind of gloss over it. And really this passage is in kind of a unique part of the book of Philippians because it's right smack dab in the middle. Paul does frequently in his letters talk about various people he's going to send. He talks about his own travel plans. But he almost always does it either at the very beginning or the very end of the book. Very rarely smack dab right in the middle like this one is. And it's actually led some skeptics to say, well, this is evidence for how the Philippians was originally two different books. Yeah, chapters 1 and 2, that was one letter to the Philippians, and, and chapters 3 and 4 was another letter. And someone kind of spliced them together down through the years, and, you know, that's not, that's not the case. But still, before I started studying this passage for this message, I still didn't quite see where this fit, fit in with the whole flow of what Paul was saying. But after studying it, it really came alive, and I said, you know what? This passage, it makes complete sense in why Paul, Paul put it here, and it's very relevant to the process of making disciples. Before we dig in, I just want to give a little bit of context to help us understand why Paul put this passage right here. In the beginning, I want to back up to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is an incredible treasure that you need to value with all of your life. You need to live a life worthy of that treasure of the gospel. And he immediately begins to apply uh, what it means to live life worthy of the gospel by pointing to our relationships with other Christians. That the gospel, this love that God has given us through Christ, should impact the way that we love those around us. He says in chapter 2, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he gives some teaching right there about how we are to treat, to treat others and apply the gospel. But then he goes on to give an example. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he tells about Jesus' great humility. He is self-sacrifice on our behalf. So he points to Jesus as an example of, how, of what our attitude should be in applying the gospel and treating others uh, in a godly way. 
And then in verses 12 and 13, which we looked at last week here in Philippians 2, Paul says that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means to apply the implications of the gospel to every aspect of our lives. So you have some more teaching, and then Paul applies the gospel again to relationships. There's a theme developing here of apply the gospel and apply it specifically to relationships with other people. And then Paul says, let me give you some examples. Well, he says, as far as the relationships, he says, do everything without complaining or grumbling. And then in verses 17 and 18 of Philippians 2, Paul gets to another example. He's already given the example of Jesus' attitude. Now Paul points to himself as an example. He says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So Paul is saying, you know what? Jesus sacrificed himself immensely uh, on your behalf. In the same way that Jesus sacrificed himself, I am metaphorically, and actually literally in some ways, sacrificing myself on your behalf as well. So Paul has pointed to Jesus as an example of, of gospel-centered love. Paul's focus or pointed to himself in a passing reference as an example of what it looks like to apply the gospel in, in love for others. And then Paul comes to two more examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus in the passage we're looking at today. And so what Timothy and Epaphroditus are serving here in terms of why Paul put this passage right here, smack dab in the middle of Philippians, is to help give us more examples of what it looks like to apply the gospel to our lives. If you look at it from that context, it makes complete sense of why Paul put this right here. And it shows that discipleship is all about imitation of lives. Paul's holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus as role models for us to emulate. So I want to now dig into this passage beginning with Timothy. In verse 19 it says, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So here in this passage, Paul is holding up Timothy really as an example of a man who genuinely cares for others. Now, Paul and Timothy have quite a history together at this point. Uh, if you look back in Acts chapter 16, uh, Timothy was a man living in a, in a city called Lystra. And Paul, in one of his missionary journeys, came through that city, saw Timothy, saw, wow, Timothy is a man who's really seeking God. He has a lot of potential for ministry. So Paul asked Timothy to come along with him. And so Timothy and Paul, at this point, have been journeying together for a number of years. And, and we see that as Paul is surveying the people around him, as Paul is imprisoned and wondering, okay, who can I send to the church in Philippi to, to help them out there? He, he sees Timothy. He says, you know what? I don't have anyone else like Timothy. Timothy really stands up head and shoulders above the others who are here available to me right now to send to Philippi. So I'm going to send him. And the reason Paul says that, Paul, that, that Timothy is standing up so tall in his mind is because Timothy looks to the interests of others, not just to his own interests. He says that right here uh, in verses 20 and 21. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here is basically making a reference back to earlier in Philippians 2, verse 4, 
where Paul says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So back in verse 4, Paul gave a very specific teaching. Look to the interests of others, not only your own. And then here with Timothy, Timothy provides a living example of what it looks like to look not only to your own interests, but also to those of others. And this is quite remarkable because, you know what? It's so easy to look to our own interests, to ask, what's in it for me? Even as we serve others and try to help others, we still have an eye towards what are we getting out of this. But Paul is saying, no, Timothy, he genuinely is interested in how others are doing. He's not in it for his own gain. You may be wondering, okay, where did Timothy learn this type of living, this type of lifestyle? Well, ultimately he learned it from Jesus uh, because Jesus is that ultimate example. But also Timothy learned this lifestyle from Paul. Verse 22, Paul says, But you know Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So there's this idea of a son and a father. And to really understand what Paul is trying to say here, we need to go back to that ancient context because really before the Industrial Revolution, it was very, very common for sons to follow vocationally in the footsteps of their father. If the father was a farmer, odds are very good the son is going to become a, fa- a farmer. If the father is a baker, most likely the son will become a baker. And the process typically played out like this, that when a son would come of age, typically somewhere around age 12 or so, that the son would begin serving alongside the father. That this, the son would come in, uh, work with the father, whether in farming or in baking or working with iron or whatever it was, and would learn firsthand from what the father was doing. The father would model what to do. The son would imitate it, would learn from it, would put it into practice. It was a process of apprenticeship from father to son. And Timothy, or Paul is saying here that that's the relationship that he had with Timothy. They weren't literally father and son, but that was the type of relationship. That's the level of love, but also the level of influence going on between them, uh, between Paul and Timothy. And realistically, when you spend a lot of time with someone, especially in that that parent-child relationship, it is going to rub off on you in significant, even unconscious ways. I think back to when I was in driver's training, uh, almost 16 years old. It was through my school. And in driver's training, I remember my first time ever driving on a highway. I'd driven before in farm fields many, many times. I'd driven um, up our driveway in my, my family's house. But never before driven on a highway where you go 55 or 60 miles an hour. And so it, it was quite the experience. And it really wasn't a bad experience. But the, the more interesting part came when it time, came time to exit the highway. Because this highway, which is by our town that I was on, is not a limited access highway. You don't have on-ramps and off-ramps everywhere. Uh, instead, oftentimes you have these roads that just intersect the highway at 90-degree angles that just have stop signs. And so it came time to exit the highway right by my town, a very familiar intersection. And the instructor says, okay, why don't you just turn off here, go back into town. So driving along, slowing down, drive over onto the shoulder, and then make the turn. And the instructor's like, what are you doing? I'm turning. Why are you on the shoulder? Um, that's what I do when I turn here. And, and he was not very impressed with that answer, I guess. I guess you aren't supposed to drive over under the shoulder and turn the shoulder in, into a turning lane. But that's what I did. And the reason I did that was because that is what I observed, had observed for many, many years. Especially from my mom, from what I remember, was that for many, many years, 
when she would turn, especially at that type of intersection, she would pull over on the shoulder and then turn that into a turning lane. And you, you may be shaking your head thinking, what idiot would do that? Well, it was in the idea of safety. Because if you think about it, everyone's traveling 55, 60 miles an hour. You have to slow down to 10 or 15 miles an hour to make that 90 degree turn. And if all these other cars are just flying by and you want to be somewhat safe, it's tempting to want to go over and use the shoulder as a turning lane. So I completely understand it, and I think there are still times when I'd probably do that um, if cars are racing up behind me really quick. But the point is that I did that out of second nature, even though I'd never driven on a highway before. I did it because I was imitating the model that I had lived with for many, many years. And that's what Timothy had experienced as well. Not, not in terms of driving, but in terms of a model from Paul that he was imitating. And, and Timothy learned uh, very well from Paul how to put others' interests ahead of his own. And we see here at the end of this passage that I just read that Paul is soon going to send Timothy to the Philippians. I may ask, okay, why is he going to send Timothy to the Philippians? It's else to represent Christ. But you still ask, okay, why is he sending Timothy? I, I believe it's not just to teach. It's not just to provide a report to the Philippians of how Paul is doing and vice versa. But I firmly believe that one of the main reasons that Paul is sending Timothy to the Philippians is that Timothy will provide them an example, a living example of what it looks like to apply the gospel to your life, an example for them to imitate. And the reason I say this is not just because, oh, it sounds kind of cool. The reason I say it is because of a very similar passage in Scripture from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 17. Um, like I said, it'll sound very, very similar to what we read in Philippians. Paul writes there to the church in Corinth. He says, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So we see, again, this, this reference to a father-son type of relationship that has taken place between Paul and Timothy. And Paul, Paul says here that the reason that he's sending Timothy to Corinth in that circumstance was so that, Paul, so that Timothy could remind them of Paul's lifestyle. Paul says, I want you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending Timothy. And Timothy basically is an imitator of Paul, taking what he's learned from Paul's model and putting it into practice. And as Timothy represents Paul, who represents Christ, that gives a visual picture, a model to the church in Corinth of what it looks like to apply the gospel to your life. It's the process of modeling and imitation. And we need to recognize that, that humans are not the ultimate model that we are, are to follow. Jesus is the ultimate model. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 um, that, that whatever happens, or that, that follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul's following the example of Christ, imitating him. Timothy is imitating Paul. And the Corinthians and the Philippians are called to imitate what Timothy is living out. It's a process of modeling and imitation in terms of how to live out the gospel. And we recognize that really understanding how to apply the gospel to our lives is something that typically is more caught than taught. 
that you can say it all you want. You can provide uh, verbal instruction. But it's much more powerful to see it lived out and modeled and then for that to rub off and be imitated in the lives of other people. So I want to move on now to pass Timothy to Epaphroditus. We're just, just going to spend a couple minutes on Epaphroditus. But again, he also is going to serve as an example to imitate. Picking up in verse 25, Paul writes, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So we see here that, that Epaphroditus is set forth as an example of giving it all for the gospel. Epaphroditus originally was from Philippi. And the Philippian church sent him to Paul, partially with a financial gift to support Paul's ministry, but also uh, just to be able to help Paul out in the things that he was doing. But while Epaphroditus was with Paul, he became very sick. He almost died. And now that he has recovered, thankfully, Paul is ready to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. But he gives them very clear instructions of how they are uh, to treat Epaphroditus. They say, or Paul says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of the gospel or the work of Christ. Honor him. Hold him in the highest honor. If you're holding someone in high honor, you realize that they are worthy of respect, that he is a role model that is worth emulating. And the reason is that he sacrificed significantly for the work of the gospel. So Paul, again here, is holding up an example for imitation, a model that we are to emulate. Now, we come back to the question. The series is called Gospel Fluency. have the question of how do these examples that Paul has set forth relate to the idea of becoming more fluent in the gospel? Well, let me share a couple things with you on this topic. One is that we need to recognize that the gospel flows best over the bridge of relationships. This is a phrase that I've really um, thought about a lot over the last couple of years, but the gospel really flows best over the bridge of relationships. And that's true whether it's in relationships with Christians or with non-Christians, that relationships are key for making disciples. Back in the ancient world, a disciple of, say, a rabbi is someone who literally would follow the rabbi wherever the rabbi went. And the disciples' goal was not just to learn the things the rabbi did and learn to teach like the rabbi, but the disciples' goal was to become like the rabbi, to internalize what the rabbi did, internalize how the rabbi did those things, and to become just like that rabbi. It was a highly relational process. It's the same type of relational process by which disciples are made today. And there's a second thing that I think we also need to understand here in terms of how this passage applies to us is that not only does the gospel travel best over the bridge of relationships, but that each one of us, you and I, are all called to be role models for the gospel. We're called to be models for the gospel because realistically we are influencing other people just by the very nature of living our life and being in relationship with others. 
And we're called to apply the gospel, to be a role model, so that we will rub off on others as we apply that gospel to our lives. Now, this may sound really, really intimidating. And you may think, well, who am I? I'm just a normal person. I, I don't know how to do that. What if I mess up? Well, I want to encourage you, you know what? Even in messing up, we will all fail at times. Even in our failures, that is an opportunity to teach about the gospel. When you mess up, when you fail, do you try to pass the buck to someone else? Do you try to brush it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen? Do you, do you just beat yourself up? Or do you accept grace? Do you deal with your failure honestly and openly? And do you, um, do you repent of it? Do you accept God's grace rather than beating yourself up? In doing so, you're living out the gospel. And that's something that can be incredibly instructive for the people who are observing your failure and how you respond. Or another thing is in terms of uh, applying the gospel to our lives, how do you react when other people around you fail? Are you someone who wants to pay them back very quickly? Someone who stores bitterness inside? Someone who gossips about it to other people? Or do you deal with that failure in a very straightforward and honest way with them? Help them to get back on their feet. Offer them grace and forgiveness for that. When other people fail, it's, a, it's an opportunity we have to live out the gospel and to model it for them. Because again, the, uh, passing on the gospel is largely about imitation, about modeling and, and, and helping others to internalize it as they observe you. Or how about how you talk about Jesus in the church? If you're someone who rarely talks about Jesus and your view of church is just a to-do item to check off your list each week, that's, that's obviously going to rub off on the people around you. But if instead you speak about Jesus frequently with warmth and genuous, genuineness and sincerity and love, and if you're excited to be involved in a church family, that also is going to influence those around you. It's oftentimes been said that, that our lives may be the only Bible that some people may read. It's kind of a cliche, but I think it's true that, that people, they are observing us. We are influencing other people. And my prayer is that we will influence people for the sake of the gospel. Now, again, I, I said that it might be kind of intimidating to think of yourself as a role model for the gospel. But the gospel gives us the power and the strength and the grace we need to do that. And there are tremendous blessings and benefits from being a role model for the gospel. I just think of all the people who have influenced me for good spiritually through the years. I wouldn't be the person I am today if not for the men and the women who invested in my life spiritually. Many of them knew they were intentionally investing in my life. Many, many, many more had no idea that, that God was using them as a godly influence in my life. I think of how when I first came to Christ in that first year and a half, I was surrounded by people who, who were deeply um, Christians, who deeply cared about what's called apologetics, which is understanding the reason why you believe what you believe. And just simply by nature of being around them, that, that same value for understanding why you believe what you believe as a Christian it rubbed off on me. I think about the, the Christians who have impacted me deeply in terms of uh, value in Scripture memory or in terms of, of teaching me how to share the gospel with others or honoring and respecting women. I mean, I saw this uh, lived out in the lives of so many people and it impacted me. And we all have the opportunity to invest in the lives of others. We all need a Timothy in our life or more than one Timothy who we are investing in intentionally to help them grow in Christ. We all need Pauls in our life too 
who are investing in us, people who are our role models spiritually, who we can look to for guidance on how to apply the gospel. Now, we started out this message today talking about the idea of the influence that we have over others. And especially, I mean, this series is talking about the idea of language. Question for you. How do people learn a language? Especially little kids. How do they learn language? How do they learn English? I mean, it's really through immersion and imitation. It's through observing, through, through the modeling of parents and others around them. It's a natural process. It's not forced. I mean, you don't typically see a parent sitting down, a three-year-old in a, in a desk, in a chair, saying, okay, these are your vocabulary words for the day. This is syntax. This is grammar. No, they do that in school because there are some nuances you need to pick up. But realistically, the basics of learning a language are caught uh, just through modeling and through imitation. I mean, think about it. Someone who grows up in Texas, they're going to speak with a southern drawl simply because that's the environment in which they grew up. If someone grew up in England, they're still going to speak English because they're, they're going to speak with this amazingly cool accent that makes everyone sound really, really smart simply because that's where they grew up. If you grew up in northern Wisconsin or northern Minnesota, you're going to speak with this other accent that I'm going to butcher, but it's, um, I mean, it's basically like, yeah, you betcha. I mean, something like that. I mean, you, you imitate what you've experienced in your environment. And my prayer for us, whether it's as a church family, as individual families within the church family, or as individuals, is that we will create an environment that is gospel-rich so that when people enter this environment— that they will just experience the gospel, that it'll just rub off on them, that they will become imitators of us without even trying. I mean, it's just by grace that that would happen, but that they will see the gospel lived out and they'll just become ingrained in them so that they too will become fluent in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this topic of being fluent in the gospel is something that is really amazing and cool, but it also doesn't come naturally for us. And we so easily, um, we, we talk about the gospel, we talk about its importance, but actually applying it to our lives, Lord, is not the easiest thing in the world. And I pray that you will help us to, uh, to internalize the gospel, to value it, to apply it, so that when people see us, when they rub shoulders with us, whether or not they know we are Christians right away, that they will be impacted by the love of Christ that is radiating through us. Lord, help us to learn to apply the gospel to every area of our lives. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus, we praise you because you were victorious over sin and over death. We praise you too and thank you that you have passed on that victory to us, that through faith in Christ, that we can experience that same victory. We experience it in part now, Lord, but we will experience it in full in the future when we stand in your presence.